Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Coming up in this episode. Coaches mistake biological maturation for talent. We all overestimate the importance of an early start. You know, young people do have higher fluid intelligence, but so what? The things you can do to cause the most rapid short-term improvement can sometimes undermine your long-term development. Welcome to the Science of Sports. My name is Mike Finch and I'm here along with Professor Ross Tucker and uh, we're going to be introducing in a few moments time an interview that we did with David Epstein, who's the author of the uh, book Range, Why Generous Triumph in a Specialized World. He's also a New York Times bestseller for the Sports Gene, two of his uh, best-known books, and uh, a master's degree in environmental science and a journalist, most importantly. He's a reporter and investigative journalist for ProPublica and was a senior writer for Sports Illustrated. He lives in Washington, D.C., and we spoke to him on Skype. But, Ross, why is it important to speak to a guy like David Epstein? Not only because he's of his book, Sports Gene, but Range, to some extent, is not a sports book, but we've turned it into a discussion about sport. Yeah, David is the guy, in my opinion, who looks at these problems with the most creative mind that I've come across, for sure. Sports Genie wrote almost as an antidote to some of the hype and nonsense around talent and genetics and training in sports. And then Sports Gene evolved into range. So now it's expanded out and we, we cover topics. It covers topics ranging from how to learn more effectively, how to innovate, how to generalize and be successful and so forth. And I just find him to be such a novel thinker. I've had conversations with him where he's pointed out to me scientific papers and their conclusions and said, isn't this ridiculous that they didn't consider ABC? And I'd read those papers and I hadn't thought of that. So he obviously has scientific training, but I think he's such a creative thinker that he brings a different perspective to them and sheds light on what other people would easily overlook. So he is easily one of the most valuable people to talk to about performance and how to optimize it. Well, here's our interview with David Epstein. Welcome, David. Uh, Welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. I know that uh, you're on the other side of the world from us at the moment uh, in Washington. We're here in Cape Town, and I can tell you that we've had a a couple of beers because it's uh, sundown time here in Cape Town. What's the time for you in Washington, by the way? It's uh, 2 p.m., so... Fine drinking time also, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> the first plane has flown over. <laughs> yeah. That's the most important part. I know that you, I mean, you you guys have, Ross and, and, and David, you've got a lot of history. I mean, how far back do you guys go in terms of your professional relationship? Good question. Uh, 2009, I, I would have thought, 10 years. That, that's that's what I would guess too. I think, um, I, I could be wrong about this, but I, I feel like our first contact was, I sort of saw you writing about things I was interested in and, sort of shot you an email and we just connected and that's right is that is that how we connected yeah i think that's how we connected yeah you and then doing, eventually we met in person and kind of like had lots of good conversations and you were doing yeah. something on pistorius oh okay okay uh, yes. you're doing something on oscar pistorius and i'd written the not, not the unpopular view but it was the view that he had this advantage and you'd written to me and i happened to be 
in, I think, Boulder at the time, due in New York, literally a week later, which was coincidental. And then I came to the building you were working at. This was when you were at Sports Illustrated. And you said, mm -hmm. let's go for a beer after work. And we did that. And we've done that almost annually ever since. <laughs> and had a, we frequented bars and Mexican restaurants in, DC, uh, in New York and D.C. more recently and spoken about the kinds of things we'll talk about today. So that's, that's where we go. Ten years of that. And bars in Cape Town also. And bars in Cape Town. And one in Oxford. <laughs> That's I, right. I, I kind of feel I kind of feel with you guys that I'm sort of in a mutual admiration society because I know David, you've quoted Ross on a number of occasions, not only in your TED talk, which I watched today, it was also in your books. And I know Ross, you speak very highly of David. I mean, just just very briefly, I mean, what is the what is the thing that most interests the two of you in, in when you have your discussions? What's the first thing that comes up when you when you have that beer in wherever you are? I'm leaving it to you, David, to answer this one. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, probably um, whatever Ross is getting shit about at the moment. <laughs> um, you know, it's usually something. So, But that's always interesting because I think he has an interesting way of, um, you know, handling diving into controversial topics and with a lot of intellectual honesty. And, um, you know, so sometimes even if I don't agree with him, I always find those conversations to be really generative and really interesting. And so I'm eager. You know, most people, I'm not that eager. I, I will get into a con conversation about controversy sometimes, but I'm not that eager to do it. Yeah. Because I think it's going to be more of an argument and less of a learning opportunity. And even if I don't agree with Ross on something, I'm kind of eager to have those discussions because, um, you know, I feel like I'll probably feel a little differently about something than when I came into the conversation. I'd love to, to know, just getting I'd, like defensive. I'd, I'd love to know what you disagreed on. So would I. That's weird because <laughs> because it's funny you say that. I don't know what those issues would have been. And that's that's the thing that I would say about David is that David talks to people as though he doesn't know something and is always willing to learn. And I, so I, I don't, most people, when they disagree with you, you know it from second number one. Yeah. Because David seems to listen. Some people, you talk to them and it's more like they're waiting to speak than listening. Whereas I think David's someone who listens before he wants to speak. So that was, that was my experience. And the other thing, the other divergence there is that I feel like when you and I meet, we often end up or start out talking about how ridiculous X, Y, and Z is because we both agree that someone That's has true. said something that is actually just absurd and not grounded in any facts. And then we, and then we start from that point. So yeah, I, I find those conversations extremely stimulating because we agree on how <laughs> stupidly some people look at certain issues that we have in, in common. And, and sometimes I think it's even less about when we start those conversations, it's less about if someone doesn't have facts and more about if they make some statement, if you take that to its logical extension, it contradicts something else that they'll say, exactly. right? So it's like not very sound thinking um, in a lot of cases or, you know, interaction of media and science. Because I think we talked about with the Pistorius stuff, like how differently a lot of the media evaluated the science after he was no longer like a fun human interest story, basically. <laughs> um, and so sort of look at those kinds of things and, and I think there's a lot when an issue becomes controversial, you know, and, and, and sport sometimes brings people topics that they would never discuss in any other context, like of philosophy and of ethics and all these things. Um, there's kind of a failure to take their arguments to like a farther, farther extension. You know, I think we've seen that in a lot of the, the things Ross has been involved with, with, um, you know, gender and sex determination in sports and things like that. Well, people will make very strong pronouncements and not spend a lot of time thinking about what the repercussions of are the you know of, of those pronouncements are basically.
I think what's interesting in, in your books, and you talk about the sort of heritage of books like Malcolm Gladwell's book, there's almost a simplification of things because that sells better than something that's more complicated. Do you find yourself as a sort of journalist in the space finding it difficult to market what you want to people to know rather than actually focusing on some of the detail. I know that you've had some thoughts about even the, 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 the tagline of your book range, which we'll talk about very shortly about how that was presented yeah. commercially. Um, yeah. How does that differ compared to what, you know, getting it out there commercially? Cause you have to make money at the end of the day. Um, but if it's too complicated, nobody's going to buy the book. Yeah. It's interesting because with my first book, um, I had a day job at SI and I, and I thought of books as sort of, your interests on your side on your own time that wasn't really so much part of your day job. So I wasn't that oriented toward like commercial success for it because I figured I write it and you know, that's it. That's like what I want to do for kicks. And then I go back to my day job. So I wasn't that oriented toward it because mm. it is, I mean, I'm always walking the line. Like even, even scientists don't necessarily talk to other scientists in the complexity that their work really entails. So it's much less when I'm trying to translate something to the public. And so I'm always trying to walk that fine line between clearly condensing things where you, you, you can't help but lose some nuance. You can't, but, but trying to preserve some of it and not condense so much that it's like actually inaccurate. And I find that a very difficult line to walk and I lose a lot of sleep over it. And if you have any nuance, it, it obviously does make the marketing harder, right? Because what yeah. everyone asks you is like, what's the one line takeaway from your book? Yeah. yeah. And I'm still not sure like what the one line takeaway from it. I address this at the end of range where I basically say in like the last page or last two pages, everyone asked me for like the one, uh, you know, one sense of advice and I wouldn't have written this book if not. And I don't know how to encapsulate this device. So here's some, here's some things, but I don't really know. And I truly wouldn't write a book if I thought I could condense it to one sense of advice, honestly. So there is that tension, um, yeah. between the marketing and, and the book. And, and I think one way you can ease that tension is by, incredibly oversimplifying your book. Um, but I try not to go that route and try to preserve some nuance even while making arguments. So a couple of things on that for me. At the end of Sports Gene, it's it's either written in Sports Gene or you and I spoke about it at one of those various um, New York bar Mexican experiences we shared. You said that for you the take-home message was that people should try as many things as possible until they find what they're really good at and then stick with that. Do you, do you remember? Is that written in Sports Gene or is that something you said to me? I don't think it's written. I probably said that. But I but I do think that's that's one of the things that sort of thematically led to my yeah, you know, that, right. newer project, even though I didn't conceive of it that way at the time. Exactly. So, so like that's, one of, yeah. yeah. Sorry, yeah, go I mean, on. One big takeaway for me was that like people don't, don't like a priori know what they're going to be good at necessarily. Right? Yeah. And so the forces that cause them to, to not expose themselves to many things, you know, aren't, aren't like good for development of most people. Yeah. So that's what I was going to say was that the, the, the bridge between how you ended up, if not in writing, but how you ended up thinking about the take home of sports gene is, is pretty clear to your second book range. Because yeah. I think the yeah. one that what, what you said to me pretty much sets range up. Um, and then the other thing that I think is interesting is I wonder if if you'll come to a similar discovery about range and whether being a parent will influence it compared to if you weren't. That's a good question. Um, and it's it's funny that I didn't even 
kind of with the sports scene, I didn't even think about, I thought I was never going to write another book. So I wasn't thinking about like how this would relate. It's very much to me, like being in the middle of a race, right. Where you're like, there are moments where you insist you never want to do it again. And then like, if it goes, okay, like maybe someday, you know, and there's a period of recovery. Um, the parenting, I think something from, from range, cause I probably before all of this, I probably would have been pretty oriented toward I don't want to say I would have been like a tiger mother kind of parent, but I probably would have been oriented toward looking for a head start. Um, you know, because why not? And if you're competitive, I think you're sort of prone to that. But now I, I'm kind of thinking of parenting. Is there something I wrote about this? Just a footnote in range about the, that. I maybe I'll expand in afterward about the the army's talent based branching process where they were having retention trouble. And, you know, first they threw money at it and they threw a half billion dollars down the drain. Um, it didn't change retention at all. And then they had retention improvements with programs like this one called talent-based branching, where instead of saying to these people they've identified as high potential future officers, here's your career track, go up or out. They say, okay, we're going to pair you with a coach and try this one career track. And like, you'll reflect on how it fits you with your coach. And then this other and this other and two others, and we'll keep like triangulating until we get you a better fit. And they had much better retention improvements with that than they did with paying people. And so I kind of use that as an analogy. I think of myself as the coach in the talent-based branching process where I want to facilitate a breadth of opportunities for my kid and then try to help them get the maximal lesson out of each one of those. Uh, so that's been like the model I've had in my head lately since writing the book. So just, I mean, just to kind of take a step back, The Sports Gene is obviously the book that kind of put you on the map as an author. And we'll talk a little bit about, I mean, I know Ross wants to talk very much about the current book now, but it's it's interesting to look back at some of the the ideas that came out of the book. One of them was that, the, let's just talk about a few of them, like the 10,000 hours philosophy around sport. One of the principal ideas was that people said if you practiced enough, you would become good at it. And um, what did that, what did the Sports Dean book tell people about that particular aspect of talent identification? Yeah, I mean, there were a couple, it was some of the underlying the 10,000 hour rules or the 10,000 hour rule or other ideas like one called the monotonic benefits assumption that like isn't so popular now, but that, you better explain that, that I'm afraid. That, <laughs> sorry? Explain that, the monotonic oh, yeah, benefit. Yeah? <laughs> the, the idea for that is, is that every individual gets the same amount of improvement from um, a given amount of practice, right? And 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 that sort of that idea kind of underlied all of this, right? Because if there were differences in how much practice people needed, then that pretty much undermined the whole deliberate practice framework. Yeah. Which argued that there was no such thing as as talent, that talent didn't matter. And so the first things I sort of criticized with the 10,000 hour rule were that there were no measures of variance, right? So this, this 10,000 hours came out of a study of 30 violinists, um, the 10 best of whom had practiced on average 10,000 hours of deliberate practice by age 20. But uh, when I asked for measures of variance, um, the researcher in this case said, first he said, well, those don't really matter because people were inconsistent upon multiple attempts at recall. And I said, you know, a lot of people have trouble with getting good data. That doesn't mean they don't include measures of variance. And he said, well, it doesn't, it doesn't really, it's not important. Like once we get video diaries, then we can, you know, do that better. And I'm like, that doesn't, you have to have measures of variance. So matter, and so more yeah. or less than 500, oh, more than 500, right? So first of all, nobody even knows the extent of variation in, in the famous 10,000 hour study. Of course, he would be upset that I call it the 10,000 hour study, but, but there was significant variation. And that turns out to be the norm. If you look across skill acquisition literature, that there's huge variation in the amount of time it takes people to get to a certain place. And some people never get to a certain place, right? Like it takes 11,053 hours on average to become an international master in chess. 
one yeah. step down from Grandmaster. Some people have made it in 3,000 hours, and some people finished a study at 25,000 hours, and they still weren't there. Yeah. So you can have an 11,053-hour rule, but it doesn't really tell you anything about the breadth of human skill acquisition and, and how important it is to identify a place where you might progress quickly. Um, so, so one of my major problems with it was that the average, the claim that the talent isn't important and, and the corollary that searching for your talents isn't important and the extrapolations that were made from an average that by its nature obscured individual variation. And yeah. And that just to add to that, that individual variation coming back to sport is really important because if it's my job to develop the next generation of chess players or sport-wise, say rugby, tennis, football, pick your sport, then who do I want to spend my time, money, and humans on? Do I want to spend it on the guy who's going to do 25,000 hours and not succeed? Or do I want to try and filter out the people who will succeed in 5,000 hours or less? So because there's a human and financial and time cost to developing performance, you have to respect the variance between people when it comes to achieving that performance. And that was what that was the practical disconnect that people didn't seem to understand. Because even if theoretically people could all become experts with more and more and more practice, the logistics of it mean that it's impossible to get everyone there. Yeah. And I mean, you know, and I would talk to sometimes coaches or people who were were, you know, really enthusiastic about the 10,000 hour rule and the deliberate practice framework. And I suggest just start randomly selecting the people you want to train. And like, nobody really likes to do that, you know? And I think there are obvious reasons um, for that. And I think it's better for the people themselves too, like helping people try to find uh, where they better fit instead of acting like everyone is exactly the same. And you can see, I go through this a little bit in the sports gene where in certain tasks that are very simple, people do converge with practice. but. Yeah. As tasks get more complex, they actually often diverge with the same amount of practice. Yeah, just explain that. I mean, Ross and I were talking a little bit about uh, that before we started the podcast. When you have this specialization, why, talk about how you get this divergence a little bit. I'm, I'm, I wasn't quite clear on why that happens. Um, well, so, so to give you an example, like one of the areas I wrote about this in was in air traffic controller training because there's like a – because that's an important job and there used to be a lot of like air crashes in the military, there's a lot of research done on screening people for this. And for example, in when they're when they first get trained on a simple task where you're just doing a simulation where all you have to do is like move a plane off a runway when another one's coming in and it becomes a perceptual motor, like a very simple perceptual motor skill mm. where you're just trying to like move stuff around. People actually do converge in that task when they get practice. So eventually everyone is like limited by basically how fast they can move their hand ultimately. But when the task gets more complicated where you have to like monitor multiple runways, you're sort of keeping things in your head and you have to coordinate and predict, um, people actually start diverging with practice. So some people get, everyone gets better, but some people get much better, you know, much faster and they, they never will converge again. And so I think you see this pattern in different, in different tasks where at a certain level of difficulty, uh, some people start pulling away from other people, even with identical practice. And so I think that suggests that at a certain level of difficulty in a task, talent starts to matter where if the task is, is too simple then you have like a ceiling problem and differences in individuals don't really matter and you could, you could just train anyone. So in, in summary, if you had to look at the, the sports gene as a book, is, it, is the purpose of the book or is the conclusion of the book, and I hate to say this because you hate putting the one-line uh, summary of the book in there, but <laughs> is it to say that the nature versus nurture argument is not as simple as making a choice between those two? Is that really what you the conclusion is at the end of it? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great one, but that's absolutely not going to fly as a marketing pitch, as we were talking <laughs> about before. But, but yeah, no, the way I tried to come up with a sentence about it was basically that some things, because I was sort of investigating my own questions, you know, things that, questions that occurred to me either from participating in sports or watching. And the way I thought of it ultimately was, you know, finding that some things that I thought were genetic, like the reflexes it takes to hit a hundred mile per hour fastball turn out not to be. And other things that I thought were totally acts of will, like the desire to train a lot turn out to have genetic components. So that was kind of the way I think of it. So, so in essence, there, there, there was always a combination of both, but actually talent was key. You couldn't be successful if you weren't talented. You didn't have the nerve. Yeah, I mean, nature. not only is it not only is it a combination of both, but it's it's also a combination of both and the context, right? So I think yeah. I think if an, if a domain is not very competitive, then you could have a lower level of talent, right? Like I think a century ago, if you showed up at the Olympics, you could potentially be the Olympic champion if you were the only person who had any talent or the only person who knew anything about training. Yeah. And today, I think many more people are screened out, either by their talent or by their training. Right. So I think I think that even it's a sliding scale with the context also. So just just to make it even more complicated and less less marketing pitch. <laughs> yeah. That's why it kills me when I see people saying, What proportion of success is talent training? Is it fifty fifty? Is it eighty <laughs> twenty? I hate that because it's clearly one hundred, one hundred. Yeah, and, and, and if it, you lack exactly. in either in either domain, in either attribute, then you don't succeed in a truly competitive sport, you know? So yeah. And by, by definition, let's assume that we do think there are differences between people in their athletic talent. Maybe, maybe, even if it's something as simple as height or if there's any small difference, then if we made the environment the same for everyone, if we trained everyone the same, then they would only be separated by those differences. Whereas, you know, if we used only identical twins, then they would only be separated by their training. So I think there, this is always, it's always a both. Yeah. What's, what was what was uh, chatting a bit about for the podcast is to say if you were going to identify um, and have a proper program, and I actually pitched this to Ross, and he said it actually did happen in Russia where they would look at the physiological attributes of somebody. And the, you know, if you're a tennis player, you had to be over six foot. If you were a gymnast, you had to be under five foot. And and if you're a water polo water polo player, as you mentioned in your book, you had to have strong and long forearms. So you could almost, I mean, is it as simple as that to say that you can physiologically look at somebody at the age of 16 and say, you, you're not going to be a swimmer, you're not going to be a gymnast, therefore you must focus on the sport where you physically have a chance of being successful? Is it, is it as simple as that? <laughs> Ross, I'm going to leave that, I'm going to give that to you. It sounds like a science question. Well, no, of course it's not that simple because all the other contributing factors matter. So those things might be classified. But is it a good place to start? That's the, I suppose that's the question. Is it a good place to start? It depends on how many resources you're willing to waste <laughs> on your journey towards finding, is it one champion or five? So the, the reason that came up, and I remember this was actually a contribution or something David said to me, is that you, you know that story, David, about the Spartak Tennis School in Moscow and how it produced yep. all these champions. And everyone offered that as an example of how the environment matters. But what they didn't bother to question or check was that they were actually screening those people for their physical capacities every single yeah. year. And if those young girls, I mean, I don't know what age they started at, but if they weren't growing fast enough and they didn't show the height changes that predicted that they'd be 5'11 or taller by the time they were adults, they were discarded from that system. So, so that system that looked like an ad advertisement for deliberate practice and coaching was actually a hybrid system that rewarded both attributes. So it's, it's always going to be both, that you will never have one or the other unless you constrain one side or the other to be exactly the same, like David said. So the reality is that when you see someone 
winning Wimbledon or an Olympic gold medal, you're seeing the integration of more factors than we probably even realize exist. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And, um, you know, I think one of the things, there's a lot of natural filtering too, right? Like you could probably tell someone if they hit five, five or something, they're probably not going to be an elite female gymnast. Right. But Mm. I don't, but most of the filtering happens, um, naturally, like the U S is obviously very strong in a wide range of sports. And I think that's because we have this massive filter. Right? We have, like when I, Ross and I were talking about this, I think I think the U.S. college track and field system supports something like 30 to 40,000 young adults in pretty serious training. I don't know what the rest of the world's total is combined, but I wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't match that. Yeah. And we have like a huge portion of all the registered women's soccer players in the world. And so I think you know, a lot of this, this filtering for characteristics, when you have a system like ours, at least happens very naturally, because you drop in a huge number of people, and you're only looking for a small number of people. And so I think that's actually the best way. Ross has said before that when people ask him for scientific advice on improving the pipeline for a certain sport, the best advice is market the sport, because you want a lot more people dropped in the top of the funnel, basically. So the best development is actually almost creating heroes. Is that that be a fair comment? People will aspire to be their heroes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because that's a good good way to market a sport. Yeah, so that puts someone at the end of the pathway to say that's where I want to get to. So you're putting a flag yeah. at the end of the path as yeah. a destination, but you still have to make it viable for people to enter that pathway. And so then, you, you know, you can't put a hero 16 years from where you are today and say so I'm going to be that guy in 2035 or whatever it is. Uh, you have to make viable every single step between that. And that's where the marketing of the sport came in you know so yeah i i always used to tell sports that they should think of themselves as toothpastes why would someone buy you instead of the other one <laughs> nice or cars i mean like cars talk. like why would i walk into a bmw dealership and not a audi one what's made me so why would i as a 16 year old aspirational sports person choose tennis or rugby instead of rowing for instance I, whatever you, you get the idea yeah I suppose it's who you aspire to be, maybe watching television, your folks, how what they watch on television, what they play. I suppose that's all part of it. There was just, a, I think, an article out today or yesterday in ESPN showing that one of the reasons like sports participation is down in the U.S. is that it's become so expensive because everyone has to be on a travel team if they want to like get selected for the next team now. And mm -hmm. so a lot of kids can't. So I think that that obviously goes in the opposite direction where um, if you get rid of sort of the, the street ball culture of certain sports, I think that... I think that hurts a lot. Yeah, and so I guess on that, um, if we then bridge from the end of sports gene to range, and, and I mean, I'm not going to put words in your mouth. You're the creator of the concept. Well, not the concept, but the book. Um, do you sometimes feel that you're offering a theoretical solution to a real world that just can't take it up? Yeah, that's interesting because I've, I've, I've been interested in your idea of that. Like you've talked recently about the difference between evidence in theory and sort of evidence in, in practice. Yeah. Um, and I, I do think that in some cases, um, I think there are some things that could be done, like the chapter on education, I think could actually be embraced quite easily. Um, but to some extent, I do think that, and I never go into a book, right? Well, I've only done two, but I've not gone into either of my books attempting to write um, advice for people at all. I go in trying to examine a question that I think is important to a lot of people, but usually only discussed with intuition, right? This, 
this question of nature versus nurture or how broad or specialized to be is a question that I think is important to most people at some point in their life, but we usually only talk about it purely out of intuition. And my best hope is to say, well, I hope I can make those conversations more interesting and productive because I know I can't answer the question perfectly. Um, and so I don't think about kind of giving people practical advice. So I'm not very oriented that way when I'm actually writing. I'm just trying to make it interesting. And so I think I think there's some chapters that contain some usable advice and others that will probably continue going in the opposite direction of, of the one that I kind of implicitly suggest in them. But I think it depends on sort of a domain by domain basis. Still to come. This because if people expose themselves to more things and delay specialization, they're more likely to ultimately fit in the sport where they are the best. Just to, just talk about the tagline in there. I mean, you, you talk about how journalists survive in a specialist world. I've read a bit of the book. I haven't read the whole thing. I'm about halfway through, but I've got through some of the interesting chapters about the the, the decision around the the challenger decision at NASA, and we'll we'll get into that a bit later. But so you started at the back. I kind of started in the middle, then I moved to chapter 11 because I was told to read chapter 11. We'll talk a bit about that. But it, it is a fascinating book. But what's what's interesting is that I'm trying to understand what you mean by a generalist. What that's, maybe you talk about it later in the book, but maybe you could define what you mean by a generalist versus a specialist in a yeah, sporting well, a context. Question. No, it's, it's a semantic issue, right? And it's a semantic moving target because there are some domains like um, – you know, in technological innovation where patent researchers will define, will quantify specialists and generalists where specialists work in one or a small number of technology classes as dictated by a patent office and generalists work in large number of, of those classes or in like the comic book research I cite where uh, breadth is quantified by the number of different genres someone works across or some LinkedIn research I was just looking at where on a half million members or one of the best predictors of who will go on to become an executive is the number of different job functions they've worked across. So each different job function saved about three years of experience and going to the C-suite. Um, and so there they'll like quantify, like here are your chances, how they change with each job function. But in a lot of fields, I don't think there is really a way to quantify it, right? Like, and the, the last chapter of the book is focused on scientists who by any stretch of the imagination are, if you look at all of humanity, are specialized, no question about it. But it's basically about how can they harness some of the benefits of what I call range even within that specialization. Because quite frankly, I wanted to write about the benefits of breadth um, and wasn't even thinking about the term generalists. That's yeah. sort of like retrofit to the book, basically. The word probably appears like four or five times in the entire book and only in the areas of research where it's probably quantified. Um, so to me, it's more about the, whatever you're doing, the benefits of having uh, breadth, because I don't even know how to perfectly define a generalist. I think, I think most of us can look at someone and and see when they're very specialized. Uh, but I think it's a semantic moving target, and so in some areas of research, it's actually quantified, but in most, it's not. And, and most of the people that I write about yeah. didn't set out to be like I'm going to become a generalist. They basically set out in search of match quality. You know, the term economists use to describe the degree of fit between someone's interests and abilities and the work that they do, and that required them to zigzag because they didn't find it right away and they arrive wherever they're going with substantial breadth that kind of sets them apart it's not that they set out to say like well i'm just going to be a renaissance man or whatever is just on match quality because i find that really it was a very interesting section of the of the book and we can explore that um is that quantifiable and measurable or is it subjective uh it's it's measurable when someone makes a measurable right so like the um for example, in the, the economist that studied higher education, and he found this kind of natural experiment in the higher ed systems of England and Scotland. 
And in the period he studied, English students had to specialize kind of like 15, 16, because they had to apply to a specific course of study in university. And the Scottish students were sort of more like the U.S., where they could keep taking kind of off-track stuff through university if they wanted to. And his question was, who wins this trade-off? And the early specializers do jump out to an income lead because they have more domain-specific skills. But the later specializers end up with better match fit, so they have higher growth rates. And so by year six, they've erased the the, um, income difference. And the early specializers start quitting their career tracks in much higher numbers, even though they're much more disincentivized from doing it. And so there, he sort of operationalized it as your growth rates, so income, and quitting rates. And so in a lot of the economics research, it looks at stuff like that, like persistence or income. So they make measures for um, for match quality, essentially. Or in the way that the Army studied it, it was retention, right? So persistence, essentially. Yeah. Just, just, I mean, just to take a step back, how does this – I mean, I'm trying to figure out how this moves back to sport. In the, in the first chapter of the range, you talk about the Roger Federer Tiger Woods scenario where Tiger Woods is – playing golf at the age of two and getting around a golf course at the age of four. And they've got Roger Federer, who in sporting terms is a late developer. And one of my favourite stories is Jonah Barrington, the great um, British um, uh, squash player who only started playing squash in his mid-20s and became a six-time British Open champion. But can you put that into context as to how that fits into the idea of generalist versus specialist when you take the Tiger Woods, Roger Federer scenario? Yeah, I mean, first of all, it's just the empirical finding that this is the path that um, future elites tend to travel. Like, I think there's as many different paths as there are people to uh, to the top, but the typical pattern is this broad, this so-called sampling period early, where athletes play a variety of sports and you know become athletes and and delay matching uh, until later than people who plateau at lower levels. And to some degree, I, I thought that was going to be completely a match quality issue. Like it was going to be the longer you can delay specialization, especially if, you know, because early, if you match people really early, you're probably just picking the people who are biological developers much more often or their birthday was early in the year or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so initially I thought that was going to be completely just, we would see this because if people expose themselves to more things and delay specialization, they're more likely to ultimately fit in the sport where they are the best. But then I started to see some of these studies, like one that matched uh, football players for ability at a certain age and then tracked them over time. And the ones who did a more diversity of things during a certain period improved more. So I think the first thing to keep in mind is just that it's the empirical finding. That's, that's what it looks like. I think there's probably an influence of both match quality. That's why we see that pattern. And I think there's some, some evidence that it, there's actually a skill benefit to diversifying early on. We know that there's also definitely you know, injury reduction, but um, what exactly the cause and effect is of that sampling period and, uh, you know, causally to people becoming elite athletes, I think we have to speculate a little bit, but I think there's some evidence that it involves matching and some evidence that there might actually be a skill benefit. I'd be curious to hear what Ross thinks about that, that kind of body of evidence, because I don't think the case is closed by any stretch. So I think, and I'm sure you saw this dozens, if not hundreds of times, is that it's very difficult to overcome the combination of survivorship bias and confirmation bias when you make early selections. Because if I'm a coach and I pick someone at 16, I'm basically committing to that person. And because talent selection is a zero-sum game, if I pick John, I can't pick David. 
So now John is in my cohort. He's in my team. And I'm going to send him away on, what did you call it? Travel teams. Yeah. The problem now is that I can't undo my pick because it's a recognition right. of an incorrect decision. And it means that I have to go back to someone who's been, in theory, left behind by the system that I've created as the, the driver of this bus. You know, I've, I've filled all the seats and I've realized actually I've put half the people in the wrong seat. So there's this huge confirmation slash survivorship bias that taints how people look at this because the people who end up succeeding might actually succeed just because there's no one left by the time they get to where they're, yeah. where they're going. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, like ultimately, if, this, if these systems keep proceeding, we may end up having only people who specialize succeeding because you don't allow anybody, nobody else can participate. Exactly. Ultimately. And I think one of the, something that really like kind of strongly supports what you said is if you look at the relative age effect data, you know, so this is the relative age effect being this finding where when selection occurs early, coaches mistake biological maturation for talent. So kids who are just born early in the selection year, um, end up making like junior teams more because well, just because they're bigger and stronger. Coach yeah, and, yeah, and bigger and all those things. Yeah. And the probably the most I think famous example is from Canadian hockey, where they select pretty early, and so you see this incredible abundance of like January and February births on their junior teams, which is bad. But interestingly, if you look at Canadians in the NHL, the relative age effect disappears completely. So that suggests to me that you really are losing quite a bit by advantaging, you know, the wrong people, essentially picking based on the wrong things, where if everyone were, you know, if you could delay that selection, you probably deselected a lot of people who might have made it to the top, where you took up those spots with kids who were just early biological matures, even though those kids were not going to be capable of making it to the top level. Right. So we did a, a sort of a pilot to this discussion where I think I called that the inclusion error. That's the picking the wrong guy. And then every inclusion error causes an associated exclusion error where you fail to pick the right guy. And I suppose this comes back to match quality is that if people in England are forced to specialize in their subject choice too early, you run the risk of sending them down a, a cul-de-sac Whereas it was it Scotland that allowed them to keep their options open longer, yeah, and you then end up in a in a better place, right? So that's that's basically the premise of match quality, if I'm framing that correctly. Yeah, and I think there's work in like you know labor economics and things like that that shows, and this wouldn't totally be applicable to sports because your lifetime as an athlete is a lot shorter, but that in the labor market at large, the less friction you have to people switching. The, the better your productivity gets because people will adjust to where they can be more productive. And so if you lower friction for changing jobs, you actually end up with more productivity. Um, I think that you'd have to temper that for sports because you have such a limited window uh, that there's a certain point at which you don't want people switching all over the place. But maybe it's still, I think some of the talent transfer programs in the UK and in um, Australia, you know, what they tried to do is is lower friction a little bit for adult athletes to try some other things. And I think they've had some success with that. Yeah. So just on that, and this is something that I was thinking the whole way through reading the book, 
How do you control for the fact that some individuals might just be unbelievably exceptional? And there could have been six things that they could have matched with and been successful in all of them. And some people might be quite limited because of innate slash talent limitations. And there's only really one thing they could have succeeded at, you know? So am I, am I asking a question that makes sense? Is, yeah, that totally makes sense. So, yeah. so when, when you talk about explore as many options, sample and so forth, is it possible that there are just some people who are, they have the whole range of options. They can literally do whatever they wanted to. And it's less about the fact that they explored and just about the fact that they are unbelievably remarkable. Yeah, I think that's, I, I think that's definitely an issue. I think I, I used to try to figure out what the increased, if there was an increased likelihood of being drafted in a second pro sport, if you'd been drafted in one pro sport and it was hard to get the numbers perfectly, but someone who'd been drafted in one pro sport was much more likely to have been drafted in two in the U S than, um, than, a random person was to be drafted in any essentially, but there was also like baseball has a gazillion draft picks and they like draft people who aren't even baseball players sometimes. Um, and so I think that's the case that there are some, you know, like I'm sure LeBron James could be, I mean, he was a great football player when he played, I'm sure he could go pro in a lot of different things. That's why I tried to look for those studies like that football study where people were matched for ability. Um, and there was a track and field study like that where people were matched for ability and, then you try to see how the things they do influence their skill development. So I think that suggested there's still something good even outside of match quality to doing multiple activities. But if you're talking about whether you should switch activities or not, my, I don't think you can control for that perfectly because we can't randomly assign people. But um, I, I think even the very top athletes still have some sensitivity to what they're a little bit better at. And that actually kind of shows in other areas of non-sports research where over time people eventually become pretty sensitive to what's called their ability tilt. Like if they're better at one thing than another. And so as they try things, they sort of start to figure that out. And I think even for really, really great athletes, they, they probably sense their ability tilt and end up going in one direction rather than another. It's hard to prove that, but I doubt there are many athletes who would be exactly like equally as good in, in multiple different elite sports, but, but that may be wrong. So basically what you're both saying is that if you're athletically gifted, you have the potential to be athletically gifted at various different sports, obviously within, you couldn't be a shot putter and a great 1500 meter runner, but if you've got athletic talent, you could transfer that across to many different sports. If you had the opportunities and the opportunities came your way. So if you were a great tennis player, um, you could actually be a great runner, but depending on which way your parents pushed you or what opportunities you had, you've moved in one direction. Is that is that a summary of it? And that you talent, athletic talent is inherent. I mean, like Steffi Graf probably could have been like one of the best middle distance runners in Europe, you know, but yeah. she didn't. Um, and yeah, I think there are like if, if you look at if you look at something like the chances of a woman becoming an elite athlete based on their height, like you know, that's an advantage that'll run across a huge number of sports for yeah. sure. Even simple stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you can also look at it the other way and say that the world's best 400 meter runner is outside the top thousand in the 1500 and they differ. That's <laughs> the same activity. All you have to do is move your legs as fast as possible and deliver oxygen to them. But they're so specialist metabolically, biochemically that actually you diverge enormously based on what's, 
what's that? It's a three minute difference in, in the same task and, and you get divergence. So, yeah, so well, they specialized at the end of the day and they, they could have been good 15 minute runners if they'd done the training. Right. So, but, I guess what David's yeah. talking about now, like runners figure out very, not very quickly, but they, they work out pretty quickly where they're good. What they're good at, yeah. 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 I, remember, I remember experiencing that, like ending up as an 800 meter runner in college and not even having known that the 800 meters was an event. <laughs> but pretty soon you figure out like, am I, you know, you try the event one up and you try the event one down and yeah. you see how competitive you are. And that's, I don't think anybody sets out to be like, I'm going to be an 800 meter runner. Yeah. I don't think most people know it's a thing, but, yeah. but you start to figure that out pretty quick. That's where you fit. So, so, so the reason I ask this is because, you know, I read the book and I, and I'm constantly asking myself, is this me? You know, I don't know if you've had this feedback from a lot of people, but I found myself every chapter wondering whether you were talking about me or someone I knew. <laughs> and I used to, and I would ask myself, and I would ask myself, is David's clearly talking here about a specialist? Does this apply to? It's like I felt like I was reading horoscopes. You know, you know that feeling where you can relate <laughs> to. <laughs> I get that all the time reading like tons of books. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's because I'm I'm viewing it obviously through my my own lens. Yeah, of course. And I find myself thinking that I wonder to what extent many people end up where they are because they dig into the first hole that they find. Not in a negative way, but they, they, they sort of take the first step and then the second one. And then they're good at it. They take the third one, then the fourth one, then the fifth one. It must be quite difficult to then tell that person to stop going in that direction and to look up, which is effectively yeah. your message in range. You're, you're asking that scientist or that businessman or that engineer at NASA to, to not just look down at the next step and then the next one. You're asking them to look up and survey the land. So how, how do you encourage someone to do that? Yeah, or at least have somebody who's doing that. Right. And, and to your point about taking one step and then another, right, that's like the sunk cost fallacy kind mm. of embodied. And and there are interesting things like people who have more college debt, you know, are one, they're more likely to go into majors that seem like they'll be commercially viable and they're more likely to pick and stick early. And in that England-Scotland study, you know, the English students had a lot more disincentive from quitting their career track because they put a lot more uh, time into it. And yet they still did it in larger numbers. So they must've felt like they had a lot of them had really bad matches because you can imagine the disincentive from you majored in it. You've, you've been in it for however many years. So to leap out the bar should be much higher, right? It's the late mm -hmm. specializers who you, if the sun, if that didn't matter, if matching didn't matter, then the late specializers should have been the ones switching much more readily because they hadn't sunk as much cost in it. Um, and I think that bedevils us into everything we do, the sunk cost fallacy. And so for me, you know, the way I've kind of operationalized it, because I've noticed myself is once I get pretty competent at something, I kind of just almost do what I would call like the equivalent of lifting the same weights the same number of times every day, which is I'm not, you're not going to get worse, but you're not going to cause adaptation either. Mm. And I've noticed that when I get, this is going to sound really stupid, but for the sports team at one point I was reading all this speed typing literature and uh can't remember if we've ever talked about this but you know like people will get faster <laughs> typing just by doing it and then they'll like plateau somewhere between like 50 and 80 words a minute just naturally yeah but you can actually get like twice as fast as that but you have to turn a metronome up a little bit and follow it no matter how many mistakes you make and then do it again and then do it again yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's it's weird it's like we we will we will naturally plateau at a level that is good but not nearly as good where we could get and that's such a weird finding because it's like you don't have to do any of that stuff you just have to try to do it early on and that gets you to a certain point and then to get off of that point then you have to really like proactively do different stuff and and i sort of think 
that's analogous to what I've noticed I do in my work, which is where once I get good at something, I'll just kind of keep doing it or competent at it, but I'm not really getting better, which is why I started changing jobs, right? When Sports Gene came out, I left and went to ProPublica right after that because I started to realize this about myself, that once I'm competent at something, I'll just keep doing it. And the only way to actually get better is if I like totally leave that. So it's like as soon as I was becoming associate, you know, known as the sports gene guy, I like totally left and went and did something else. Um, so for me, I keep something I call a, a, a book of small experiments that I actually force myself to like do things outside of my lane. Uh, and it's a little haphazard, but I've found some of it to be really beneficial. So, so it, that's the classic overload principle in physiology. If you don't stress the system beyond what its capacity is, it just never improves. So that's what speed typing and your experience is like. So the question I want to ask then is what makes you different to someone who does something, becomes quite good at it, and then holds on to it and never thinks to branch out or change it? What makes me different? Yeah. How, how do you mean like in my mentality or in my performance? Well, so in, in range, how? you talk you talk about the, the, the failure of people to sometimes let go of the tools that they've become used to using. And you, you give yeah. these, I mean, there's extraordinary stories of firefighters who die holding on to their tools when all they needed to do was drop the tool and run and they might have survived. And it's the, the psyche of then holding on to something that becomes your identity is so yeah. strong that it actually kills you, literally in these instances. Yeah. So it's yeah. interesting to me why you would become competent slash world-class at something and then let it go. Not, not that you're letting it go, you're just applying it elsewhere, right? Yeah. Why yeah, do some I mean, people hold on to their tools and others don't? I mean, there's no question that like within the, within the writing field, right, I, I left – I left my job at Sports Illustrated when I was the best at it that I had ever been. Um, and I thought a lot about that before I did it. Uh, and so, so to expand on that small book of experiments I, I mentioned, let me give you an example. Like in the writing of Range, at a certain point, I decided to take a beginner's online fiction writing course just because I was like, I need to try to learn how to write in like a different way or else I'm never going to get better at this. And um, what I was looking for in that course was actually to learn something about structure and that didn't really happen. But, you know, so in this beginning course, like some people have like never written, you know, nothing you've done matters. But one of the lessons we had to write a story with no dialogue whatsoever. And I had been leaning on dialogue, you know, in magazine, like much more heavily than I do in a book like quotes. And that sort of like cued something in my head that said, I'm, I'm using a lot of like quotes that aren't that, clear when I should could do this more clearly in just narration. And I went back through all of the manuscript that I had at that point and stripped a ton of quotes. It also made me realize where I was using quotes because I didn't quite understand something. So I just put it in someone else's words. And I think it made it a lot better. But this kind of scary part was that I didn't even think about how I was leaning on something I was used to from magazine writing until I kind of got knocked out of that headspace by having to do something different. And so I think it, it kind of goes to this research finding that your breadth of training predicts your breadth of transfer, right? If your transfer is your ability to apply your skills and knowledge to new problems, things that you haven't quite seen before, what predicts your ability to do that is how broad your training is. So I, I wasn't oriented toward like trying to diversify the challenges I face until I, you know, became more cognizant of this kind of stuff. And so now I kind of proactively try to diversify the, uh, the challenges I face. And I know some of the people that work in safety, like in fire safety. So there were fire reforms made. That's the, 
firefighters still die with their tools sometimes, but some of the reforms involved like much more improvisational training for situations that might not even occur or in some of the special forces. I know they made their training, so they'll have them doing some exercise and then they'll introduce like some handicap into it randomly, even something that might never actually happen just to try to get them in that mindset of, you know, anything can change at any time. Don't get too automated in what you're doing essentially. And so I think that the, what you try to do is try to diversify the challenges you face in training. So uh, this is all great stuff. What I'm struggling a bit with is to kind of see the relevance to sports in particular, because obviously we're, we're talking specifically about sports and, and the theme behind this podcast is talking about talent identification to some extent. How does this all tie into that? I mean, if you, you talk about all these, these ideas, if you were looking at sports specifically in this situation, how do you tie all this in, into that in terms of identifying success in sport and potential success in sport? I mean, I I didn't really write the book for it to try to have an impact in sports, honestly. <laughs> so there's that aspect of it. But what I would do is try to set up systems that I think allow people to sample and delay selection if they want to. I, I don't I don't mean to force prescription on people to to diversify any more than I would force them to specialize. Yeah. But I think our specialization systems, and, and I don't think individuals can do much about it. Like parents will ask me, you know, what can I do? Say, well, you can't really do it. You're subject to the system. There's not really anything you can do because you can't work outside the system in a lot of these, these cases. But I think we can set up systems that diversify the pipeline, that make sure we don't deselect people early um, if we can help it. Uh, and of course, all these things like fancy travel leagues and expensive equipment, all these things, all these things work in the wrong direction for that. And I think within sports, because I think the, the multi-sport, there's the aspect of match quality and, and exposing yourself to different sports, of course. But there's also, you know, the general athleticism component, right? How do we diversify challenges within a sport? And that's why I think one of the reasons that futsal is such a good um, developmental game for football. It's like it's some days kids are playing on sand and another day on cobblestones and, yeah. you know, on a tennis court over the net. And it's they're really diversifying the challenges they're facing within that context. Or I, I like Judy Murray's sort of approach, you know, Andy and Jamie Murray's mother in tennis, where she takes kids and because of her name recognition, people are willing to to give her their kids for development and they're doing something with a racket and a ball that's tennis like enough, but it's like, they'll be playing through tree branches one day, you know, and all these other sorts of diversified challenges. So I think we should also have systems that within a given sport, try to capitalize on, on diverse challenges basically. And I think that's doable. Like I don't yeah. think it matters if someone's putting on a basketball Jersey instead of a soccer or instead of a football Jersey. Um, so I would, I would change our pipelines to alter the deselection and allow sampling for people who want to do it, uh, delay selection as much as you can, and within a given sport, try to diversify, diversify the challenges. You know, do variable practice. And I think HBO Real Sports just did a segment on Norwegian sport development. Did you yeah. guys see this? No, no um, we don't have this. Check it out. Yeah, I'll look for it. Because there's they're going Norway, you know, which did quite well at the last Winter Olympics. I mean, arguably one of the best national performances I would say in Olympics ever. They're going like the opposite direction of the U.S., where they are like right. deformalizing pre-12 competition, you know, de-emphasizing selection, de-emphasizing specialization, and they're doing amazingly well. I think I think a country like the U.S. can have poor development on a million dimensions and still be a world beater because we have more athletes than everyone else. Mm -hmm. Um, but a country like Norway actually has to care about more optimal development, basically. Yeah, the Norway example was really interesting. It was it was pretty widely covered at the time of the last Winter Olympics. And one of the things that stood out was 
they spoke about the, the result doesn't matter until you become a young adult. And we would rather that 95%, and I think they've achieved this, 95% of their kids are active in something, if not more than one thing. And that's, that's what they reckon is the, is the seed of their ability. So what you've spoken about there is very much systems approach to the issue about translating to sport. But when you were talking a few moments before about your, is it called the experiment book? I call my book a small experiment. Book a small experiment. Just, yeah, whatever. It struck me that I've I've been lucky to work with a few pretty good coaches and a few really average coaches in my life, and the good ones have that mindset. They the, the best coaches I've worked with are the ones who read outside their field. They watch documentaries on the Vietnam War, and they will read books about business, and they will spend their free time talking to a financial director as opposed to another coach because they're constantly trying to stretch themselves in different directions. So I think that there are many applications of what you said there to coaches who might be listening to this, because the, the I think when you, especially the higher up you get, the, the more you lose sight of the ground, you know? And so these yeah. top level coaches tend to become so immersed in developing a better basketball team that they actually forget that maybe there are ingredients that don't involve basketball tactics. So I think there's an element of that in there as well. Give us an example of that. Like, for, like I'm interested to know from you guys, you, you, you specialize in this area. When you say if you're a coach in basketball, you take something from outside basketball. Okay. Well, for instance, what what would it what would that be? I'm sure David, since range and sports gene, you've sat on many panel discussions with these coaches, and you might have heard one. But I'll give you one. Is I know a rugby coach, Paul True, who used to coach the South African sevens team, and one of his most stimulating contacts that he used to meet with regularly was a guy who ran a big hotel chain. And this guy used to say to him that the big challenge in a hotel is that everything in the hotel has to be aligned from the person who cleans your room to the person who welcomes you when you come to check in. And how do you create that degree of alignment so that the person's experience from start to finish is, is, is positive and exceptional? And he would then say that the same thing is true when you're trying to teach a team of rugby players tactics is yeah. that from the guy who's going to play two minutes to the guy who's your superstar, every single person has to carry the same responsibility, the same identity, the same culture. So what can I learn from this guy and then apply it to my rugby players? That's an example of transferring principles from business to sport, I think. Yes, yeah. some, some US teams I'm familiar with have started because of that, I think. And, you know, I think a lot of coaches also, they will they will learn, or a lot of people in any profession, most of the things that are specific to your profession, you'll, you're going to learn because you're in direct contact with those people in that world anyway. Mm. And so the stuff you're not going to learn is outside of it. And some of the U.S. teams have really started hiring people from outside, right? Like whether that's data analysis, like the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference is basically a a job fair for the NBA for people who have like not worked in basketball at all, but they're coming from whatever finance, computer science, whatever else. And some of the teams have started hiring people from completely outside of sports. Like I know the Cleveland Indians, the guy who runs what's called buds, which is basically basic training for Navy seals. He retired from the military and the Cleveland Indians hired him. And they basically said, uh, we're just going to make up a title for him. I think they called him like the VP of VP of learning or something, <laughs> VP of learning and development, maybe <laughs> whatever it was, they're just making up a title. Cause they're like, let's get this guy in. He knows a ton about what works, like the questions you should ask people if you want them to evaluate their own peers and all sorts of things like that. Uh, and so 
they they also I think Dan Coyle works with them also. He's over there in in Cleveland. Um, but a bunch of these teams have, and then it's like sort of a copycat thing, right? So a bunch of teams started hiring people from special forces, uh, and so I think we're seeing like an increase in hiring from outside of the profession, which is which has been sort of an interesting thing. I mean, it, it kind of moves us on to my next uh, t- t- topic, and that's to discussing this this famous chapter eleven in the range. It talks about dropping the tools. Is, is that is that kind of where that chapter takes you? In 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 other words, you sometimes you don't see the blind spots because you're only working with what the, with what you get rather than the questions you should ask. I, I think so, and I don't think that chapter is a condemnation of specialization necessarily because it talks about. Um, you know, airline pilots and airlines are almost like they're staggeringly safe overall uh, when things go as expected. Good you know? to know. And if the problem is that chapter is more looking at, you know, in areas where you have to be specialized to a certain degree to, to be successful, where you have to automate certain things that you do, how do you avoid the negative consequences of that kind of specialization? And I think some of that does have to do with setting up these circuit breakers, whether that's bringing in people who have an outside view, or I was telling Ross, I was talking to the head of safety at Delta and he's a pilot himself. And he told me, he has a sign on his door that says, stop thinking like a pilot. Because he says all the stuff that the pilots kind of have to do traditionally is really well understood and well known. And it's when something goes kind of gets unusual, uh, that's when you start to have problems. And there you have to like take off your hat that, that automates the stuff you normally do. And I guess there's some feeling in that industry that the guys who came up through the military were better at that because they had faced such diverse challenges and different kinds of planes and all this other stuff other than piloting that kind of made them ready for that. But now we have more of a crop that has been specifically trained just as commercial airline pilots and they are, are not as good at improvising. And so, for example, one of the things that he set up, which I think is akin to, so in that chapter, I talk about mixing, diversifying the ways you hold people accountable so that instead of having them just accountable for outcomes or just accountable for the process they use, you build in some of each of those. And so it kind of forces them to balance them and learn is that that he created a system where compliance to the regulations of the company are actually secondary to safety. So they switch their priorities so that it's safety first, compliance second, so that it's clear to, um, because the, the commercial airline is so process dependent, yeah. like there's very, very rigid processes. And he felt that they were getting too far in that direction. So he said, you know what, compliance is actually secondary because we want you to improvise when something happens that we're, that we don't really understand. And, you know, that's a situation you haven't been in before. And I think that's like a really smart thing to do. And is that where the generalists, I mean, I know, I know you don't like using the term, but it is in your book, but is that where the no, generalists no, I, come in? I don't in? dislike using yeah. the term. I just think it's a semantic challenge. Yeah. Is, is that where the, the idea of generalists comes in then? Is otherwise they're coming in, you have to think like a generalist, even though you might be a specialist. It's kind of a thinking rather than a, a person. Absolutely. And again, that's exactly what this, this gentleman at Delta said. He's sort of, this job is, um, you know, has required him to take off his pilot's hat, basically, and, and think in other ways. And I think it's it's important to have people that do that, that can that can take off that specialist hat and sort of bring an outside view and, and look at things and have multiple mental models to bring to something. Otherwise, you sort of become, the, the chapter before that one is about forecasting, right? people who make yeah. predictions about the world. And mm-hmm. the ones who do worse are the so-called hedgehogs, where they might spend their whole career doing one thing and that may give them an advantage for turning up certain types of knowledge that other people aren't looking for, but it gives them a huge disadvantage in that they begin to approach every problem 
as if it were the single one that they had studied. And so they often get like incredibly blinkered. And you see some of those really perverse results where some of these scholars become worse at making predictions as they accumulate credentials and awards and things like that, which is some of them, one of the most interesting things to me was if people listening are sort of Bayesians, right? Like the basics of Bayesian statistics is you should be updating your beliefs based on new, updating odds based on new information. And some of these people in these forecasting contests would get so kind of narrow that when they would make erroneous, like really erroneous predictions, and they would have a chance to update their belief system, they would update in the wrong direction, like becoming more confident of the things they said that sent them exactly astray. And again, that was something that happened with people who were really narrow, you know, as they accumulated more credentials. So um, that's kind of a real perverse outcome. And the people who did better, some some of the people who did better had a specialty, but they like roamed outside of it and didn't treat it as inherently more valuable than than other specialties, basically. Ross, can you, I mean, can you translate that into in a sporting sense? Well, so I, we're I, translating was, that. I was going to ask a question that, that maybe got to that. So you spoke about the Delta CEO, was he? Yeah, uh, he's officer. the head of safety. Head of yeah. safety. He, he, he was a pilot himself. Now he's the head of safety. Yeah. Um, and you've spoken about the hedgehogs, the, the pundits mm. or the experts and so forth. We could ask the same question of a coach is or a high-performance manager of a team or whatever it is. When, when are you better off hiring a generalist as opposed to a specialist? In other words, I'm, I'm now in charge of an elite sports team and I've got to put together my support system around the players. Do I look for five specialists or do I look for three generalists and, or not, not, not necessarily generalists, but three people who will bring a divergent, external, unfamiliar way of thinking to the problem and two people who are hedgehogs? How do you find that balance? Because you've spoken in the book about an ecosystem needs both. Yeah. And I wonder if you have I, any advice about how you actually achieve the the balanced ecosystem. I mean, I think the way that the industry is often trying to achieve it now is through conferences, right? Things like the Leaders in Performance Conference, where you go and it's a sports conference, but half the speakers are like a ballet dancer and a, a, you know, a military officer and whatever else. Um, and I think that helps. Like it gets people to think about different things. And I think there's a reason why those conferences aren't just straight sports speakers. Um, but I think that's limited. My feeling, if, if we put this on a practical level, my feeling is that sports organizations are not in danger of not having enough specialists, right? Because everyone wants to match what they what they see elsewhere. And like you need a wide receivers coach and all those sorts of things. Yeah. So I think in a practical standpoint, most places – should just be looking for their one generalist or their one or two outsiders. Where now I think they they are moving toward consulting in that way and going to conferences that add that, but they'd be better off having someone who's kind of more in-house to play that role. Um, and I think most, most teams that I have any insight into could start by hiring a generalist, like an outsider, right? Like maybe like the Cleveland Indians did. Um, what the exact ideal mix is, I, I don't, I don't know how to figure that. Yeah. But I think right now it's basically so heavily tilted towards specialists and doing things the same way, um, that just bringing in anyone from the outside would would be an advantage. Yeah. So, so you actually do in the book you had, you sort of address this question directly because you've got this concept of Superman versus the Fantastic Four. I wonder if you could very briefly explain that concept and and we'll talk about how that might be applied. Sure. And I have, I just brought up one of the, 
the emails I did with this Delta guy, if you want me to like read an excerpt or anything like that, or mm-hmm. I can, or I can skip that. Yeah. If you, if it's relevant to what we're talking about, I'd love to hear it. So basically he said here, he said, today's challenges in aviation are much more complex and abstract than before. Automation and high reliability have eliminated a lot of the experiential learning and conceptual reasoning isn't a skill taught in pilot training. Aviation is both very repetitive, but also at times very cognitive. The challenges have become less about technical expertise, like landing in a crosswind, and more about interpersonal skills and cognitive breadth when something happens that you haven't seen, which is what leads me to my, quote, conscientious adherence soapbox um, that you heard, basically. So that was the where he was saying compliance should actually come uh, come second. So I thought that was kind of a cool paragraph. So, so that's really interesting because a lot of the coaches I've spoken to, and certainly in team sports, there's been a movement towards this, is people recognize now that the point of difference that's going to help one team win a World Cup or an NBA title or not, or whatever sport it is, is not necessarily technical execution. Although if you have a Steph Curry or Kevin Durant or LeBron James, that probably tilts the balance in your favor. But it's more about how the sum of the parts interact with one another in a complex system. And a lot of coaches now talk about trying to disrupt and challenge the way that people think about the, the problems they face as a sports team. And so they'll design training ses- uh, sessions in the same way that you spoke about was at Special Forces, where they'll just do something really left field to put the people in a different mind space. A lot of coaches try and do that now as well. So they'll deliberately induce discomfort or failure. I was listening to an interview with uh, Eddie Jones, who's coaching England at the moment. And he said when he was coaching Japan, they'd have a training session, say at 10 in the morning, and he'd cancel the bus. And then he'd, go, then he'd go to the training ground and he'd wait for the players, knowing that the bus had been cancelled because he wanted to see how the players coped with it because he reckoned that these young guys, they've been identified at 15, 16, and everything has been laid out for them and they don't actually have the ability to solve new problems that come up. So how a player reacts to a bus not showing up has nothing to do with how he's going to play on the rugby field, at least superficially, but maybe it does. Because you're challenging the guy to actually take ownership and to think differently about problem solving and so forth. And if you can turn that into a sports performance issue, that might be the point of difference. So that was that was an interesting link that I just thought of there as well. That's interesting. I don't know if it resonates with you, but just thinking about the bus not showing up. I know when I was a runner, I would always, the, not just me, a lot of runners like the, the better the meet you get into, you know, pen relays or whatever, the worse the warm up goes because there's all these obstacles like the meat's not running on time or you have to stay in this waiting pen for all these things. And there was a lot of us saying, including me, like, you know, that race didn't go that well because this thing got messed up in the warm up. And, and then eventually I realized like the warm up never goes how it's supposed to go ever. And it never once would. So you just kind of have to let go of that and learn how to improvise. And that was like a big, uh, kind of a big, it sounds stupid. It sounds so simple. It was kind of like a revelation for my mindset, like just expect it not to go well. Yeah. Um, and that's where you, that's where sport is now is that is that we've come out of an era where it was about instructing people to do exactly as they were told. Our current rugby coach here in South Africa when he was coaching a couple teams back, he used to go up onto the roof of the stadium and hold up different colored signboards to tell the players what to do. And so what would happen was the whistle would blow and then 15 guys would look up and they'd see a green board and they'd do X or they'd see an orange board and they'd do Y. And that, that was how regimented it was. You're basically taking all the autonomy and the thinking away from the players. And that was that was the previous generation. I think people have realized now that you actually have to give people the responsibility to think. So how you 
It's it's and it's so difficult because you're basically the orchestra, uh, you're the conductor of an orchestra, but you're hoping that everyone with their musical instrument plays the right note at the right time without you telling them to. Yeah. Very difficult. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, and I guess as the level gets harder, you sort of need that, right? Anyway, yeah. um, they'll have to do that. And let, me, let me give you one last like two sentences from the Delta guy, because I think it resonated with what you said about a, a coach. Um, he says, "My formal traditional training and education is as a pilot, but as a safety leader, very few of the problems to solve have anything to do with my pilot knowledge." I placed a sign above my office door about ten years ago that stated, "Stop thinking like a pilot." I've spent much of the last decade trying to learn how to be a generalist, sometimes to the chagrin of my colleagues. Um, I, I sort of think of like great coaches as kind of master generalists in a way, right? Especially at the higher levels. They're not, they can't really tell athletes at the higher levels exactly what to do. Like they can set out the training, but I think there's a certain level of skill at which you can't really tell people what to do anymore. Otherwise you would only have the best athletes being the, the best coaches where they have to kind of, you know, they're like part therapist and part motivational speaker and obviously have knowledge about the sport and all these other things. And so I think the best coaches have to have this kind of pretty broad array of skills. It wasn't, um, who was the Ross, the rugby coach? Oh gosh. He, he was, he came from, he was a police officer and like a police trainer. Steve He's Hansen. like a legendary. That's no. New Zealand's, New Zealand's current coach was Steve Han or is Steve Hansen. And that was his background. I think that's who you're talking about. That's not who I'm talking about. I saw this guy speak. Gosh, dang it. I can't remember his name. Hold on. I saw him speak at the Australian Institute of Sport. Wayne Bennett. Wayne Bennett. Um, uh, he's an Australian. You know he, was, uh, he was a coach in Oz in national, in the, in rugby league or AFL, if I'm not mistaken. R rugby league. And I think that's, he was like their, right. most, yeah. their most legendary. Yeah. And I remember seeing him um, and he was a police officer before that. Yeah. Um, okay. And so... Yeah. So coincidentally enough, so was New Zealand's current coach. So maybe there's something in that. <laughs> so is it is it fair to say that I mean maybe the move is not necessarily having generalists, but having a generalist mindset is probably the is I mean what you guys are talking about now is people like the pilot who's had to change his mindset. He was a specialist. He's changed it. So maybe from a sporting perspective, it's about coaches and people within sport understanding that they have to have a different mindset rather than necessarily having to hire these people to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think if you can get it the way you can get it, um, I think in a, to some degree, having a generalist mindset, it, it's almost synonymous in, term, in the cognitive aspect, right? As if you are interested in lots of different things and learning about lots of different things from the standpoint of what's in your head, like you're you're kind of becoming a generalist in that sense, as, a, as opposed to more functional where like you've just worked a lot of different jobs kind of thing, which I think is another dimension. What's a couple more comments? Uh, any other questions? I know that we've got we've, uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is if you had to do another book, what what would it be? <laughs> any thoughts about what the next book would look like? I don't have a clue. <laughs> there is in that in that you're in that, that recovery, or are you in that moment in the race when you think you never again? Uh, no, that one. Yeah. Never again. Actually, here's a funny, so there's this statistician I talk to a lot when I'm working on the book, and I told him the other day, and I've talked to him a lot during both books, and I told him the other day, like never writing another book. And he, he goes, let, let me do it. Uh, he goes, let's do an experiment that I think you'll appreciate. Um, this is kind of from a chapter that we didn't really talk about, but he says, let's take the outside view. How many people who are your age, uh, you know, who've written two books and they've both been bestsellers don't go on to write another book. And I said, probably not very many in the outside view. So from the outside view, it would say <laughs> for sure, I'm going to write another book, but I'm like, but from, but I really feel like I'm not going to, and that's the inside view, right? Is like the things that I'm feeling right now, but I know the outside view is more objective. 
So I'm saying I'm not going to write another book, but if I went with what I know is the more objective way to analyze it, the outside view, then I am going to write another book. Yeah, so, you'd say that the odds the odds ratio is, is pretty high and likely significant that there's another book coming. Probably, but I don't have a yeah. clue. Every time I finish a project that, that goes well, my first feeling is like, well, I'll never get that lucky again. Um, <laughs> and at a certain point, you start to feel like, all right, maybe you know, maybe I'm doing something that makes me more likely to get lucky, but it always feels that way. Um, and I've usually been embarrassed about saying, I'm not sure what I'm doing next, but now I feel like it's kind of on brand for me. So I'm a lot less embarrassed about saying it. <laughs> Can I, on that, um, cause I've spoken to a few people since reading the book and even before, and something that really resonated with me was that people who try and develop five-year and 10-year plans are probably doing a futile exercise that's more likely to limit them than it is to help them. Would you agree with that? Definitely. I mean, and, I think it's okay to make that plan if you're going to be flexible. Yeah. And so <laughs> I joked earlier about... <laughs> it's not a plan um, anymore. <laughs> I, I jo- yeah, as long as it's not too rigid. I joked earlier about feeling like <laughs> I was sometimes <laughs> reading, a, reading a horoscope. But one of the things that really resonated with me is I, I couldn't have predicted three years ago where I'd be today, let alone... Or, or let alone five or ten years ago and it sounds to me like you're the same so when totally. i speak to people about the book and you say that you sense that the biggest barrier to a lot of people is just fear of not knowing what the future holds for them do yeah. you think do you think knowing what you know by virtue of having read hundreds of papers and spoken to hundreds of people helps offset that fear or do you just have to live with it and learn to cope with it can you cognitively it- overcome it in other words no, I no, I think it, I think it, I think it attenuates it, but definitely doesn't get rid of it. I mean, I I, can, I still feel it. I feel yeah. it less because there was there was a period where I thought like something was wrong with me. I'm like, why do I keep getting like fed up with jobs so quickly? You know? Yeah. Um, and so I don't so much feel that way anymore, but it's still psychologically unsettling. Like one of the characters in the last chapter, Andre Geim, who's the only scientist to have won the Ig Nobel Prize and the Nobel Prize. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, he said he likes to change his area of research every five years. And, and so he, he said it's psychologically unsettling, but he said, I like to say, I, I don't do research, only search. And for even him to say that he finds that psychologically kind of unsettling, I think sort of shows like he, he's, he's obviously convinced that that's the life he wants to live. And he's obviously done well with it, but still finds it unsettling. And I, I feel the same way. Um, and I think Herminia Ibarra, who's, whose work I talk about in range, she kind of gets at the fact that it's always going to feel unsettling because what your work is a big part of your identity and mm-hmm. your identity doesn't change overnight. Even if you know you want to do something different, even if you should do something different, it changes in pieces. And so you're always going to have that phase where you're like straddling worlds while you're transitioning. And so reading some of that work made me feel, you know, a little less of an oddball, I guess, that a lot of people probably feel this way, but I don't think it gets rid of the anxiety about it, or at least it hasn't for me. If you had a choice of somebody you'd like to write a biography about, who would it be? Good question. Someone, when I was going through um, the book, who I only mentioned in brief, who I thought would have been a fascinating biography, is a guy named Claude Shannon, um, who was training as an electrical engineer, and he took a philosophy class in college. And in the philosophy class, he learned about the work of a long-dead English logician named George Boole, who had found that you could code true and false statements like with one and zeros and solve them like math equations. Yeah. And nothing 
nothing had been done with Boole's work for a century. Like it was just useless kind of play. And Shannon takes that class and then he goes on to an internship at a phone company and recognizes in the relay switches that you could use, you could use those as sort of true or false or ones or zeros. And he kind of combines um, what he learned in these various areas and creates the binary code that underlies all of our digital computers today. So he sort of launched the computer age. Wow. And and it's interesting to me that most people have never heard of him. Yeah. Um, and he went on to kind of make another revolutionary finding later and uh, seemed to be a fascinating guy with a very playful mind, always changing what he was doing. And he also spent some time at Bell Labs when it was like the greatest lab in history and all these, it was a corporate lab that all these Nobel Prize winners came out of. And I think it would be an interesting model for, um, you know, innovation today. I, I recently met a guy who's like a legend in in computer science named Bill Joy, who's actually like one of the characters in Outliers, I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And what his concern was, he thinks that he thinks that polymaths that you can't make polymaths, but that you can stifle them, and that we're often kind of like stifling them by making people's job descriptions too narrow now. And we need more places where you would allow a polymath to become a polymath because you can't make them, but you can definitely inhibit them. And he's worried that we're not having kind of enough places for those people anymore. And so I think it could dovetail with all these kind of issues I think are interesting. Hmm. Sorry, Ross, was that a... F- f- oh, that's a great answer, great answer. Ross, final, final comments from you? Uh, th- th- no, I mean, I just think we need to get David on here to talk about some specific stuff because we've barely scratched the surface of either <laughs> book, to be honest. I mean, yeah. I asked you about Fantastic Four versus Superman and we didn't, oh. even, we didn't even get into that. <laughs> But um, I diverted but, that question, yeah. But there's no, no, no worries. I mean, we we hopefully we can do that again. I I just um, when you when you read like a self help book, Seven Habits of or Five Life Hacks Everyone Should Know and so forth, I feel sometimes like you're being told what to think. Whereas when you read a book that's full of nuance and just tells you how things are and offers insights and so forth, like you've written then everyone will take a different message from that book. Yeah. So I know that we've I know that we've worked quite hard always to bring things back to sport, but I'm pretty confident that listeners if they read this book they will find six things in the book that resonate with them whether they're a coach, a scientist in sport, a scientist in nuclear physics, whatever it is, whatever you do as a listener, give the give the book a read and you will figure out how to apply it to your own situation because so much of it will go, "Hey, that's me." Or that used to be me, or that's who I want to be. So, I think we've I think we've covered a great deal. So I think it's been really really good. Thank you. I must say one of my favorite parts of the book is when you talk about uh, tech companies and how the perception is that tech companies are always started by long heads, earring to you know, 20, 20 something year olds, whereas in fact it's people in their mid forties that do that because they have a, a wider view of the world. And I, I must admit, I was quite inspired by that because you kind of feel when you get to sort of middle age that you're kind of on the shelf and you have no use anymore. But this book actually is probably the best bit of advice. In fact, you probably at your prime when you were middle aged. That was, that was an interesting, you know, young people do have higher fluid intelligence, but so what? Like older people have higher crystallized intelligence, which is probably more important for a lot of things you want to do. And that that finding that the startup founders who were more successful, the average age was 45 and a half. I was at like an investment conference for this thing called Motley Fool, which is like a very well-known investment site here. And they put that question up to the crowd on a screen. What do you think the average age is of a founder of a successful startup? 25, 35, 45, 55. And 25 was by far the dominant answer, followed by 35, followed by 45, followed by 55. And these were people who are like, you know, 
like plumbing these companies for an investment opportunity. So they should like know the field really well. And we're still totally, it's just like the Roger and Tiger thing. Like we, we yeah. only hear the Tiger story. We only hear the Mark Zuckerberg story, even if mm. they're the outliers, maybe because they're the outliers is why we hear about them. I'm, I'm not really sure, but exactly. Yeah. And the, yeah. and, and the sports equivalent of that question is at what age do Olympic champions or world-class athletes tend to start 10, 15, 20. And everyone says it must be younger than 10. Yeah. And, and it's we all, and, we all, overestimate the importance of an early start and and ross i told you i mean to me the sub theme of the book is that sometimes the things you can do to cause the most rapid short-term progress can undermine your long-term development that's like kind of what the theme of the book is to me um and yeah to that point i should say i was telling ross i was getting some criticism about this i never meant to imply that people should be a bad athlete as a kid in order to become a good athlete later on like, so some of the criticism I've got, and, and I think early exposure is great. I think playing a sport is different than being specialized in the sport at a young age. So mm. I should go on record saying, I don't think there's an advantage to being a horrible athlete as a kid. Yeah. Right. But, um, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but how also, did you, how did you phrase it? You said the key message of the book is. What I think of it as is that the things you can do to cause the most rapid yeah. short-term improvement can sometimes undermine your long-term development, often undermine your long-term development. Right. Whether that's whether that's picking a career as soon as you can, specializing in deliberate practice as soon as you can. You know, chapter four is about learning techniques, using the learning techniques that cause you to do the best on like a test right away. Whatever those things are, getting as narrow as you can, whatever your work is, they they often are not the best for you know, you're often sacrificing some long-term for some short-term. Yeah, and that's a message an athlete, a coach, high-performance guy, scientist, they can all relate to. Yeah. David Zepstein, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.